welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. All right, friends, uh, saddle up, partners. Kind of the Western theme there, saddle up, just going for it. Look, carry more hitchhikers, pick them up! You want to hear the most annoying sound in the world? Oh, okay. All right. Uh, I'm going to stop quoting from Dumb and Dumber now, and I'm going to move to Liar Liar. Uh, so we are in uh, the second week of a series we're calling Wells and Fences, and uh, last week we, uh, we spent some, uh, I think, some really important time together. Uh, which I'll get to in just a second, but just for way, by way of review, because it kind of sets up the whole series and what we're doing with this, uh, I want to just, by, by review, uh, this was in a nutshell, if you could, you know, uh, what that yellow book, thumb, not, um, Cliff Notes, this is Cliff Notes from last week. Um, so on the left, we talked about bounded set and centered set ways of thinking. On the left, um, this is kind of your traditional uh, religious community, right? And the question in a bounded set is, do you believe what we believe? And if not, then you're on the outside of the fences. The fences are kind of doctrine, beliefs, that sort of thing, which isn't to say that all doctrine or all belief is bad, but often it gets set up this way, and if you don't believe what we believe, then you're outside of in, and you sort of wait until you do believe what we believe, and then the door opens to you. The other version, or the other option, I guess it's a totally different version, uh, so it's not another version, it's a different thing. On the left, or uh, on the right, is centered set. And the idea here is, what's at the center becomes the thing that's important. Less about what fences are on the outside keeping people away, or keeping people in or out, but rather, what's at the center? And uh, are you, do you care about what we care about? And so uh, what I offered last week was essentially um, Awaken is not interested in building fences, but rather keeping Jesus at the center of this community. And tenaciously, we will, uh, the the life, death, teachings, resurrection of Jesus the Christ will be at the center of this community. And so this series is kind of an exploration of, uh, we're we're a, a church plant moving into the Evangelical Covenant Church, which is the denomination we've planted in, and uh, and this is a kind of a big summer for us as we get welcomed in as a full member congregation. So we're exploring the six affirmations that make the covenant the covenant. So this is less about, you know, denominational flag waving, but more like what's at the center of this group of people that we're, we're sort of connecting ourselves to. So, um, just for a second, if I could, uh, last week for me was really, really significant. If you weren't here, just stick with me and we'll, we'll move past this in just a moment. But if you were here, I want to stop for a moment and help us identify what took place. Uh, for me, last week will be very, very memorable because I sensed something in the room, this collective sort of affirmation of what was happening and what was being talked about and what was being sensed. Uh, there was this kind of, there was this idea that there was more going on here than you could describe empirically, right? Taste, touch, sound, feel, that kind of thing. And I sent, did anyone else get a sense of that last week, that something was happening here? Um, for many of us who, uh, who d- didn't grow up in, a, in, a, in an environment where moments or experiences with the Spirit of God um, were either really bizarre and out there and things that we didn't really welcome, or uh, a lot of us don't have categories for authentic, real, spirit kind of experiences and moments. And so I wanted to just stop and, and say, uh, 
In order for us to do this, the centered set thing, it will be absolutely imperative that the Spirit of God is present in our midst and that we have the capacity to discern it and hear what God is doing and speaking in our community. And I want to just stop for a moment and say what you sensed, felt, experienced last week in this room, don't forget it. Because I would, I would argue that what we experienced together as a community was a moment where the Spirit of God was present in a way and speaking and we, we were in tune with it. We were singing to the same tune or we were dancing in rhythm with what the Spirit was doing. So I want to just name that. Part of the job of the pastor, I think, is to interpret sometimes uh, not only scripture but moments that we have together. So I want to just stop for a moment and do that before we go any further. Um, This series is, uh, like I said, these kind of six affirmations. And this morning we're going to tackle the first one of them. Uh, They'll all appear on the screen behind me. I won't go through them all. But these are the the sort of what's been at the center of this group of people called the Covenant since about 1850 when it started. So today we're going to look at the centrality of the word. And I want to tackle this by um, asking a little bit about the history. Like how exactly did we get this book in our hands that we hold and call the Bible? How did, it, how did we get here? Um, and then I want to talk a little bit about the nature of this book, which I think is, is uh, very, very important that we understand this and we, we sort of start here. Uh, and then I want to finish by asking a question about uh, any Lutherans in the room, any, uh, uh, any former Lutherans or current Lutherans or wannabe Lutherans. Uh, <laughs> Martin Luther said, sola scriptura, you might remember this. And I want to ask the question, is that actually helpful or not? Um, so, ooh, we'll bait you, you know, hang you on the hook. Are you ready? Okay. Here we go. Uh, I'm about to shake, uh, well, no, let me say this. What I'm, what I want to explore today is, is, uh, may in fact be like shaking of the most important branch on the Protestant evangelical tree, okay? Um, For many, the Bible has been at the center of theology and what does it mean to be a Christian and what does it mean to be evangelical in the broad sense, okay? Not evangelical, vote right wing, get a microphone in front of your face, that kind of evangelical, but like just Protestant Reformation theology. The Bible has been at the center of it. And what I want to do this morning is actually start, you might feel that this, you might, uh, this, this experience might feel like the ground beneath you is shifting a little bit. And uh, I, I, want, I, I want to just do this. I'd ask that you hold a couple things together as we do this. One, in one hand, I'd ask that you hold what you know of me as your pastor and my love for and my, uh, my love for study of the scriptures and the teaching of the scriptures, I want you to hold that in one hand and on the other, in the other, hold what you're hearing this morning. Because if it's possible that this could be interpreted as, well, Micah, he not, doesn't think the Bible's important and other things. Not at all the spirit of this. But I do want to challenge some of the ways that we think about the Bible because I, I would argue that it's, it's a little shifty. The ground on which we've built some of this is a little shifty and I want, to gra- I want to root it in something more solid okay so in order to get there you might have this feeling as we go sort of like ah, I'm not really sure about this I feel like we should be defending or shooting something at him hang with me okay and I hope that by the end of this it pays out and you go okay so just withhold judgment till the end is that fair okay let's do this let's jump in um so this idea of uh uh um history or the scriptures 
This is how the covenant has talked about the Bible in, in, in our, our sort of history. Uh, you'll see it on the screen here behind us. The old, the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, are the only perfect rule for faith, doctrine, and conduct. So this book, uh, Old and New, this is the only perfect rule for faith, doctrine, and conduct. And the, the, the spirit in which um, our forefathers and mothers have tried to read this book, they talk about it in a couple of adjectives, one being humbly, that we don't have the final say, we have a perspective, not the perspective, and so we study this humbly, we come to the text humbly, we come to the text communally, like together, when we study the word of God, it's important that we do it in community and not in isolation so that one particular view or vantage point doesn't get, uh, that might need to be challenged doesn't get challenged because we're in isolation. So we read together, we read communally, we read this thing rigorously. I've said this before to this community, you all are theologians. Whether you believe it or not, you ought to be, and I would say you should be. If you follow Jesus, this is your task. This is not just my job. We are all theologians together. We all do the work of understanding and thinking about God. And my hope for you is that you do so critically, that you do so with well-formed thoughts and, you know, um, reasonable thoughts about why you believe what you believe. So we're all doing this together rigorously, that we would read it charitably. We hold the beliefs that we hold with open hands in the sense that we recognize that 10 years from now, you may find out something that you don't know about God. God forbid that would ever happen, right? You know, we just, oh, we've got it, lock it down, lock box, throw away the key, we've got it. No, we hold these things loosely. We hold them firmly in the sense that we want to, we believe what we believe because we've thought about it critically, but we hold them loosely. Uh, so humbly, communally, rigorously, charitably, and holistically, that the scriptures, the gospel is not just about the saving of souls. In fact, I would argue it's way more than that. It's that at base level. But it's way more than that. It has to do with the whole world that God had made, body, mind, and soul, not just uh, evacuated souls to heaven someday when we die. Totally different sermon. But that this thing is holistic. The gospel talks about all of that. So these are some of the words that the covenant has used to describe our study of and our, the importance of the scriptures in our communities. Now, you might recognize, you might notice, conspicuously absent from this list are words like infallible, inerrant, inspired. Right? If you didn't grow up in evangelical culture in the 1970s, there's this huge debate. They called it the battle for the Bible. In fact, if you go on the Googles and type that in, man, saddle up. It's actually quite humorous. For me, I think it's funny. <laughs> you might not. I don't know. I don't know. I should speak for myself. Um, but it had to do with the authority of scriptures and the legitimacy of the scriptures and therefore the accuracy and the place of the Bible in our communities. And truth be told, the, this whole battle for the Bible, inerrant, infallible, inspires, these became fences by which people were determined in and out. It was, it was quite ridiculous. Um, the Covenanters, have, and I just love this, this, this is uh, our position, or the, 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 the Covenant's position on the inspiration and the infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture is as follows, and I quote now, All Scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, 2 Timothy 3. The Covenant Church has chosen not to be more precise than this in its stating its view of inspiration. <laughs> I don't know why I'm the only one that thinks that's funny. <laughs> it's like this minimalist, centrist kind of approach. The, the main things, the main things. Major on the majors, minor on the minors. So this is kind of where we begin. 
Now, I talked about, I want to talk about history, nature, and then this question. So jumping in with history, let me ask this one question. Or let me get at it by asking this question. Paul, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, says, All scripture is inspired. Your text might say, God breathed. All scripture is inspired. My question is, what is Paul's referent? Now think about this. What's Paul referring to? Okay? Think about when Paul's writing somewhere uh, uh, between like 70 AD and 100 AD, let's call it. There are, there, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, what's Paul's reference? Yeah, I would submit Paul's reference, what he's referring to is Torah, prophets, law, right? It's, it's the writings, it's Old Testament, essentially. Paul, arguably, when he's writing, there are still books of the New Testament that are in this book that have not yet been written. So when Paul says all scripture is God-breathed, and we read it, we assume, well, yeah, it's 66 here, 39, 27, Old Testament, New Testament, it's right here, buddy. Um, but is it possible, maybe I could ask the question in a different way, is it possible that when Paul wrote this text, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, that he did not, in fact, believe or know that what he was writing is what we would eventually call scripture? Is it possible that when Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote the accounts of the Gospels that they didn't in fact know at the time that what they were writing would be called what we call the Word of God? Is it possible that when these writers were writing, they were writing letters to the Ephesians, the Corinthians, the Philippians, the to Timothys, the so ons and so forths? And is it possible that they did not know that this was in fact scripture? And the reason I'm like teasing this, the reason I'm sort of needling this, is because it be, for me it begins to start, it pulls some of the threads that unravel this thing that we call inerrant and foul, these views of the Bible that we have about the scriptures and the word of God. Because when Paul himself wrote, I would say that when he, he wrote this, all scriptures God breathed, he wasn't talking about what he was writing. But we would. So how do you navigate that tension? How do, you get, how, do you, how do you understand that? Because for us and for Paul, we're talking about two different things. Is there something else going on here? Uh, a little bit about the process in which we got this book, right? So by the time Jesus rolls around, we're talking about the turn of the millennia. Uh, uh, he dies in 33, our best case, uh, best guess. By the time Jesus rolls around and he's an adult and he's doing his deal, when he talks about um, the scriptures... It's pretty, pretty, on pretty solid ground that the, most of the Old Testament is pretty much a closed deal. So what we have in the Old Testament is what is being referred to. Now, later on in church history, there's this debate over what's called the Apocrypha, and it's a number of Old Testament writings, First and Second Maccabees, uh, Tobit, a few other ones, and it's, it's this sort of debated section of the text. But for the most part, for, uh, uh, for this illustration, we'll just call the Old Testament mostly... A done deal, okay? So Jesus, then, it's not until 100 AD or so that all of the books in the New Testament, the 27 books of the New Testament, have been finished writing, that they're done, okay? So it's not until 100. And then it's not until 200 AD that we have an alleged, it's not totally confirmed, but there's a guy named Origen, who's a church father. In 200, there's this alleged list that Origen is working with that he would say is, or the list actually lines up with the 27 books that we call the New Testament canon. Okay? Canon is uh, another word for rule, like the closed 27 books of the Bible. It's not until 
much later than that, in 367 is the first official, documented church father who works with the same 27 books or makes a list of the same 27 books that we have in the New Testament. It's a guy named Athanasius. He writes an Easter letter, and he says the 27 books that we've got right here today are the ones that are Scripture. Not until 367. And it's not until later on than that, at our best or, or the most earliest date, 393, at a council called the Synod of Hippo, where there's a, an alleged first official presentation by the church fathers and the bishops all gathered together to say that these 27 books are the books that we're working with as the New Testament canon, right? The notes for this or the acts of this council actually get lost, so we don't know for sure, but... Parts of it are presented a little bit later at two other councils with a guy named Augustine, if you know that name, like re Reformed theology goes back to Augustine, 4th century. So it's not until like at the latest 419 that Augustine goes on record and says the New Testament 27 books are closed, it's the canon, that's it. Okay. Now, here's the deal. It's not until 1647 at the Westminster Confession that Protestant evangelicals come to any consensus about the book that we hold in our hands. Not until 1647 do they say the Apocrypha is not officially a part of the canon and we get 66 books called the Bible that you hold in your hands today. Now, I'm in seminary, first, one of my first theology classes in seminary, and I'm sitting here listening to all this, right? I grew up totally evangelical culture. It's like the Bible, whoa, sola, sola scriptura. If the word says it, I believe it. This is the culture I grew up in, right? So it's like, if, I mean, the Bible is it. It's, like, it's, the, it's the linchpin, it's the cornerstone of this theological conception. So I'm sitting in this classroom, and I'm sitting there going, and, and much more detailed, right? There's a lot going on here. There's all these councils and these meetings and these people who are deciding, like, is it in or is it out? Like, there are literally a number of books that were on the table that ended up not making it into the canon. In fact, some of the books that are in here were highly contested, very debated. Esther, uh, one of the books, uh, or Book of Esther, Revelation, Jude, Hebrews, James, all almost didn't make the text, almost didn't make the canon. Luther himself, in the, in the mid-1500s, argues that James, Jude, Hebrews, and Revelation should not be in the canon. He called it the anti-legomena, like not in the word or not with the word. Luther! Martin Luther, Sola Scriptura, right? This guy. He's arguing in the 16th century that these books shouldn't be in the text. So I'm sitting here and I'm looking around at all my friends and I'm going, am I the only one thinking that, did we do a background check on these guys that decided for us? Like, who's to say they didn't have a few too many drinks? I mean, right? I mean, this is, we're talking like old school, like... They had to like eat, they had to drink fermented things because the well, water was no good. You know, they could get sick from this. So beer and wine, it was very, very part of their culture. Who's to say that at whatever council they got together, they didn't have a couple too many, and they missed one. And literally, I'm sitting in this class thinking this, like, this is actually the this is the process? Essentially, what you're asking me to do is put all of my faith and all of my trust and my belief in the Bible on these yahoos? Yeah, they had a very rigorous like criteria by which they determined whether it's in or out. You can find out all, all sorts of stuff about that. But essentially, what you're asking me to do is place all my faith and trust in the Bible. In or, what if 
our foundational beliefs about the Bible was rooted in the God behind the text and not in the text. What if our foundational belief about this book actually is rooted not in this book in and of itself, but in the God who's revealed to us in the book? Now, I think that these... Because, gang, listen, I mean, you don't have to be a committed, you don't have to, I would say you just have to be, have a pulse to recognize the leaps that we're asking people to make when we say, do you believe in this, the word of God? Because anyone who has a brain who thinks critically and starts, starts actually like studying and getting into this and how it happened has, can present very well-formed, critical, thoughtful arguments to say, dude, you are crazy. And if our, if our beliefs are just like, it's in the Bible, I believe it, that's enough, then we are on shaky ground. And you ought to be like, oh my gosh. Or, you're cri- you're, you, th- you should be a little nervous at this point, but what if our belief in God is not rooted in the text in and of itself and the process that we come to it by, but in the God behind it, who constantly, time and time again, this is why I would argue it last, it, it's lasted this long, reveals God's self to us through the text. If we start there, then I think these very um, honest and, and well-thought questions about the text and the process and canonization that could like crumble the whole thing, they're not as lethal anymore. But if, but if, if not, if our, if our belief is rooted in this book, like I think it has been often in religious communities, especially for evangelicals, I think we have some work to do there. And so I want to offer, I want to at least engage you in the process of saying what? Maybe good segue to the nature of the scriptures, right? Let me ask a couple of questions. What is the point of this book? What's the point? Like, at the end of the day, if you reduce it all down, and I don't encourage you to do that often, but if you were, what's the point of this book? Why is it useful? Is it because of the process by which it comes to us and the people who were involved in all the councils? Is that why it's useful? Is that why it's authoritative? Is that why it's a perfect rule for conduct, faith, and doctrine among Christians who follow Jesus? Why is it powerful? Why does it transform people's lives? My roommate in college, total like, uh, uh, philosopher, very, very um, critical, very skeptical of the Bible and Christians, and for good reason, he told me some stories, and I'm like, yeah, I'd, I'd not like them either if I were you. He decides to read the Gospels in the quietness of his own room his freshman year of college at State University, and he has a transformative experience where he just absolutely lays down his life and says, I want to follow this Jesus. Why does that happen? Is it because of the process? Is it because the, or is there something behind the scriptures that is being revealed to us through the scriptures? This is a collection of somewhere between 40 different authors. A thousand years of time have been, have been spanned from the first one that's written to the last one that's penned, and like eight different genres. And if we hang the entire thing on 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is God-breathed, I think we have a lot of work to do. 
So I want to offer a, maybe another more, a more solid, what I would argue, a more solid uh, foundation for the importance of this book in our communities and for those who follow Jesus. I would submit to you that it, there is a much more solid foundation and, and that gives reason for our love of Scripture and are holding it at the center of our communities, and lo and behold, it's found in Jesus. There's a, okay, now, if you would, just for a moment, put on your sort of theological nerd caps uh, and just journey with me for a second. Um, there's a guy named Karl Barth. Uh, Karl Barth was a theologian, and uh, he wrote in, like, World War II, so late or mid, uh, early 1900s. And he gets just lambasted by evangelicals and by conservatives. I would submit because they miss what he's doing, especially as it relates to this. But one of the things that he offers, and I think it's spot on, and where I'm headed with this whole word thing, and how do we keep it central, and why do we keep it central, and why does it matter? He's, he talks about it in terms of revelation. He calls it a theology of revelation. Why is this book important? Why is it authoritative? Why is it transformative? Why is it so powerful? Why do we keep it? Why has it lasted 2,000 years? He would argue because it's rooted in revelation. And by that I mean, and by that he meant, that it's the means by which the most important move that we, that we see God doing is revelation. He would say that God, because of grace, how, do we even, how can we know God? How can we have a relationship with God? It's only through grace and God's first move to reveal God's self to us in and through Jesus. So Bart has this sort of three, three um, levels to revelation, and I would actually, he would, he would as well, but I'll present them the other way. I'll present them descending, and the most important is on the bottom. He would start with the word, okay, the word of God preached. So he would argue that when, this, when, this, when the word of God, when Jesus, and the word and Jesus can't be separated, it's the same thing. We'll get to this in John 1. When the word of God is preached in the church and for the church, that this, and when, it, when it's done so in a way that brings, uh, conf, not conformity like everybody in a line, but the spirit of what the scriptures is doing, when there's conformity that's brought to the community because of that, the preaching that's being done, and obedience, that, that actually the spirit of God is present in and through that act. This is why Protestants are ordained to word and sacrament. Have you ever heard those two words before? If you're, if you're ordained in a Protestant denomination, you're ordained to word and sacrament. Because there's a belief that when those things happen properly in the context of the church and the community of Jesus' followers, that when the word is preached faithfully and the sacraments are administered in a way, that there is a divine presence in them. And that's why they're so powerful. So he would start there, the word of God preached. Then he goes down and he says, the word written. And he says, this book, the reason why it's powerful is that the Old and New Testament writers are sort of called directly by the Spirit to give witness and testimony to what they've seen and happening of God's action before Jesus and, God's, uh, Jesus and then God's action after. And because of that, because they've been sort of inspired, called, however language you want to use, that this becomes a testimony and a prime, these are primary witnesses, especially New Testament, of the thing that God does in and through Jesus. So the, the preached word, the written word, and then he would say, and the most important, the one that these upper two serve is the revelation of God in Jesus. So why is this thing important? Why is this book transformative? Why is it authoritative? Why do we even bother with it? Because it tells the story of Jesus, the revelation of God. And when it does, and as it does, it becomes the revealed or the revealing of God. 
There's this one quote, he says, God may speak to us through Russian communism, through a flute concerto, through a blossoming shrub, or through a dead dog. We shall do well to listen to him if he really does. The point being, I would submit to you that it's possible for this to not be the word of God. Here's what I mean by that. If the spirit of God is not actively present in someone's reading of the text, then we may as well be reading Aesop's fables or Hafiz or some other wisdom literature. But when the Spirit of God is present, when we read the text, it becomes the revelation of God to humanity. This is why my roommate can sit in a dorm room by himself and read this text that was written thousands of years ago and have an encounter and an experience with the living God. So what do I hope for and pray for for this community? My hope and my prayer is that we would, when we come to the text, that it would not be an academic pursuit, that it would not be about institution, that it wouldn't be about religion or, or habit or anything else, but that when we come to the text, we would recognize that this is one of the primary means by which God, the creator of the universe, reveals God's self to us, and when we open it, we subject ourselves to the possibility of an encounter with the living God, an experience with the living God. Because when the, spirit ha- when the Spirit's involved in that, it becomes the revelation of God. And that changes people. Let me, there's a guy named Jakob Spener. He was German. In case you didn't know that. In uh, like the late, uh, mid-1600s, okay, back up. Martin Luther taxed the 95 Theses on the door of the church in 1517. And from that point, the, the, the text and the Bible actually become, and it's kind of like, if the pendulum swings all the way over here, because Luther's critiquing the Catholic Church for all the ways they're essentially not reading the Bible, and he's like, listen, it's in the text. If it's not in the text, you can't do it. Sola Scriptura. So for that reason, it's totally helpful. right? He's, he's, the pendulum swung over here, and he swings it back over here and says, Sola Scriptura, Sola Scriptura. Is it helpful for you and I now? I would say, when we, when, when we just read the Bible without the Spirit, not a good spot to be, right? And I don't think any of the reformers wanted to jettison or sort of marry the Bible to what does it mean to be a Christian and elevate it to the position that it's held in a lot of our communities where it's almost, arguably, over and above the Spirit of God as far as importance, over and above God. And it's like, if the Bible, Bible, Bible... None of these folks would have argued for that, but rather, they would say, sola scriptura, yeah, okay, against Catholic Catholicism, all the things going on there, and contextual, yes. But when we lose the Spirit of God present in the reading of the Scriptures, we lose revelation. And when we do that, it's a dead book, it's a dead routine, it's dead religion. When we lose the Spirit, when we come to this table, it's just a religious ritual. But friends, this is more than bread and more than wine. Why? Because when God reveals himself to us through it, it becomes something more than that. So Spainer, he comes along, and there's this guy, in 1600, this guy writes, the font, the pulpit, the confessional, and the altar have become the four idols of the Lutheran church. Essentially, these things have all become rote religion with no spirit. They're dead, they're dead, they're dead, they're dead. All of them, they're dead. And Spainer's like, listen, guys, when the, when the reading of the word becomes an academic 
pursuit and a, and a sort of intellectual endeavor. And remind, remember where he's coming from, right? Modernism, the enlightenment, all this like mind stuff, reason. Descartes says, I think, therefore I am. Everything about where he's coming from just drives the reading of scripture to this place of dead academic institutional pursuits. And Spanier's like, oh my God. And I use that intentionally. Would you remind us that the pursuit of the, the reading of this book is, is because we are, long, we are searching long after an encounter and an experience with the living God. And so when we come to this text, because it will be at the center of who we are as a community, my hope and my prayer is that it, it will never be that it's institutional, that it's academic, that it's only because, but rather that what we're after is the God who is behind the text, who has revealed God's self to us in Jesus and whose story is told here in which God picks it up and makes it his word for us and to us. Because when that happens, game changer. Check, please. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awakening Community or on Twitter at Awakening Community. See you next time.